Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Charlie Kirk, for going to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and joining the phalanx of proud patrons of the original cast. And if you act like Charlie, and I think you should act like Charlie, you can, like Charlie, gain access to our bonus monthly podcast, The Original Cast of the Movies, where 2023 is the year of Barbara. October's film is the boxing romantic comedy The Main Event, starring Barbara and Ryan O'Neill, with guests Chris Klimek and Casey Aaron Clark. We got a real boxer and a real redhead for this one, folks. You don't want to miss it. Patreon.com slash OriginalCastPod. All right, here's the show. My guest today is a content... Lord, that was terrible. My guest today is a content... Oh my gosh, I wrote this and I can't say it. My guest today is a content contributor for a... (laughs) My guest today... Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a content contributor for digital learning at the Kennedy Center and, I have on good authority, is the most knowledgeable person about a particular musical. We'll find out what that musical is. It's a Lenny Hagen, everybody! <laughs> Hello! Hello. I hope it's not too much hype. Oh my gosh, uh, that is a but... little... I feel like there's a couple of message boards online that will beg to differ uh, on that one. Well, I mean, I have some emails that would would stand in your support. Uh, so Kenny, Kenny Neal put us in touch and said, well, we'll have to go. I was going to say what he said, but then it'll say what we're talking about. So we'll just jump right in. You're here to talk about. Don't call it a comeback. It's Sunset Boulevard, baby. I'm coming out of makeup. The light's already burning. Not long until the cat. And the early morning madness and the magic in the making. Yes, everything's as if we never said goodbye. So Kenny texted me and said, I have the the world's (laughs) most authority on Sunset Boulevard. Oh, no, no. Have you ever done Sunset Boulevard? And I said, we have actually. We did it with Len Rendino, who works at Playbill and is a good friend. And it was a lovely conversation. But I didn't realize, because Andrew Lloyd Webber doesn't usually record lots of different cast albums for his shows until later, that there were so many cast albums for this musical. There are. And I really didn't realize, I didn't know, honestly had no idea that there was a recorded version of the West End production with Patti Lapone in the world. Oh, it was I the first heard, one. Yeah. I had heard samples from it and I just sort of assumed they were, they recorded singles, they recorded highlights or something. I did, but this is a full thing. But we talked about doing the Dutch version. We talked about doing all <laughs> kinds of things. But I want to have to ask you, as I ask everybody, how did sunset boulevard come into your life and become oh, this thing God. of your life as how well how long do you have and are you okay with being my therapist for the next <laughs> uh, hour and a half? i have uh, found myself in that role more than once so <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes so i am going to come across my poor mother was like oh gosh you know we're going to come across as, as you know negligent parents <laughs> they were in no way negligent parents sure. um so shout out to public school teachers my father being one of them mm-hmm. but uh in the winter 
1995, I found myself with this recording, with the Patti LuPone world premiere recording um, in my bedroom. I was 12 going on 13. I was probably the most precocious 13 year old of all time, but this was all because my um, middle school chorus teacher had assigned us the two big ballads, had assigned us with one look and as if we never said goodbye, um, mm. as you know, as part of our choral performance that coming spring probably. And my dad, who was an educator for over 40 years um, and a big fan of opera, is a big fan of being prepared for things. And one of his things back in the day, kids, we used to not be able to get everything <laughs> online. So he used to go to the library and he used to say, okay, well, you know, like, what are you interested in or what have we been talking about? And let me grab you, you know, so that you can listen to whatever your, whatever your heart's desire is. Mm -hmm. And he had gotten me knowing that we had had this assignment and, and I mentioned it, he had gotten me this recording. And I had played it a bit. I, you know, heard the big ballads and everything. And I think one night I let it play and I, I sort of had a like, what, what's happening now? And, and when I finally, I let it play into the night. And when I realized what was happening and what occurred and what the story was, you know, like where it was going, my, my DNA got altered. <laughs> I, I just, Wow. I, I was never the same after that. I felt ill. I felt like I the only cure I could get for this feeling was to go back to the beginning and listen again. And I think I've been doing that ever since. Like, it's like, maybe I'll fix this horrible, horrible, sad and tragic story if I keep, you know, going back to the beginning and trying sure. to make sense of it. And, you know, I was funny because because when Kenny said, you know, he will ask you, how did this this come to you? And and I said, God, I'm so scared because I don't even know how I explain that. And he said, just say the patriarchy. <laughs> I was like, you know what? That's totally fair. I just right. didn't have the vocabulary, excuse me, the vocabulary for that when I was mm -hmm. 12. I didn't realize that so many of the things that were drawing me to it were things that I was already starting to find frustrating as an adolescent. And I think if I look back, I was drawn to, in a lot of other things, a lot of other fictional portrayals, was, you know, just what, what being a woman is like and, what, and, and how if you are a female who asserts your presence, who is, you know, you know someone who is dramatic or shows emotion, you're considered problematic in certain ways and life isn't always that kind to you. So mm. I... Um, I think I was drawn to that. I think I really, I thought, hey, there's something, there's something to this. And so you identified with, with Norma Desmond? I did. Isn't that bad? <laughs> I was 12. Well, I, well, let's see how the conversation goes and then we'll tell okay. you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, this is going to be a therapy session. I, yeah, I, I sort of, I think also I always liked, I like, I was thinking about this. I always liked, even in Disney, the, the characters that had swagger, that had self-possession or at least, you know, purported to, they, mm -hmm. they seemed that they did. Like, I remember I really liked Maleficent from the animated Disney from the Sleeping Beauty. I really, that deep voice and the like, that kind of transatlantic darling, like, you know, that kind of thing. There was something about that that I found really intriguing and and very confident. And I don't think I've ever had that level of confidence. So something that I was like, I'd like to at least, I'd like to be able to pretend to be that way if I could, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think I'll ever have that, but there was something about that. The voice was pitched low. It was womanly as opposed to ingenue-esque. And I always liked that. I've always mm. found that interesting.
had you, so you're, you're 13, you encounter the musical. When was the first time you saw it? So yeah, it was then the next, it was 19, oh no, it was only like the next month. So my, my folks were getting us ready for a move. We, we were going to move from my high school years. And uh, I think they took pity on me and I had been talking about it so much that they bought me tickets and I got to see Miss Glenn Close. Yeah. Really? I, oh, sir. I saw wow. her three times. <laughs> and um, <laughs> well, no, nice. five, if you count the revivals. I was going to ask how much yeah. of that was revival and the answer yeah, is yeah. not. Okay. No, 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 no. Yeah, it was, it so, was three times on Broadway. I saw the show wow. seven times on Broadway total. Yeah, I was so obsessed. I, my dad swears, and I have no recollection of this, but my dad swears because it was my mom and I who went together. And he swears that I came down the stairs to the theater when it was done and he said how was it and I said I need to see it again and yeah like he was like I just I'll never forget your eyes just lit up and you're like I want to see it again dad and so yeah we were off to the races man I just have not been able to shake this thing I wish I knew why like I said save me some therapy but (laughs) well I mean you know what speaks to you speaks to you it's not you know that's that's sort of a right but I just have no explanation entirely like I you know like I started Mm -hmm. was like like I was like our past lives a thing (laughs) Was I some sort of like, you? It's yeah, it's you, really, Gloria Swanson in a past life. Yeah, right. Oh no, I think she. Uh, I think we overlapped a bit. I think she died in eighty three, and I oh. was born in eighty. Oh well, there, there you go. So <laughs> when um, and have you seen the movie? I probably should ask oh, that yes. question. Yes, sir. okay, many a time. I figured I wouldn't. No, 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 no completist would not have seen, seen the, the film version from whence the source material, as it were. Uh yeah. So well, this is. So I saw. Let's see. I saw the Broadway production with Betty Buckley, I believe, who's very good, and George Hearn. um, Amazing. And yes, in his in his Tony Award winning performance. Absolutely. And um, I so I had I'd seen it. I've listened to it, obviously, a bunch. I love the American premiere recording because of the Queen Judy Kuhn, Long May She Reign. Ah, uh, okay, fair enough. As Betty Schaefer. and I was struck by so the world premiere recording, obviously, which is which is this one you know we'll talk about a few, I'm sure, but the <laughs> the one that we're we're sort of ostensibly going from with <laughs> Patty Lapone and the ill-fated uh, transfer to the Ooh. to the states is a very different, very much so. rec- re- recording with with a lot of different kind of I'm not sure some of it feels sort of condensed for recording, but but otherwise like it's a very. Um, there's a lot more recitative in certain sections. There's a lot less. The songs are very truncated. Yeah. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Well, I think I think what ended up happening. One of the things. One of the many things that ended up happening as the show went through its incarnation to premiere in LA mm. was that a lot of Joe's spoken lines of narration became recit, mm. and mm-hmm. I I think that worked in their favor. I think that actually ended up one of the one of the many sort of aspects that actually ended up making it more cinematic ironically because they were they Mm. were leaning more on music but i I think that helped it i helped the scenes sort of blend into each other and segue into each other in a much more fluid way that felt like we were shifting from shot to shot as opposed Mm. to here this is stayed thing joe has a bit of dialogue now we move into a song Mm -hmm. um and yeah but no you're absolutely right and i think 
I think lighter, which is so funny because for some reason the designer, the designers picked up on that too, because you have this sort of like orange cover that's very right. sunset-esque, obviously, you know, there's some kind of light that's hitting it. And then by the time they got to the American premiere recording, it's like gray and black and white and everything. Right, like, it's no, black no, and white. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this like is a, like a movie. This is a yeah, noir. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. they have, they have an extra song is every movie's a circus, which is, you know, right. okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, well, which is more than like, a song though. Yeah. Let's hang on that for a second because sure. it's more than a song. It becomes kind of leitmotif almost like it becomes they all do they yeah. sprinkle every movie's a circus Absolutely. through especially in Absolutely. act one it gets sprinkled all throughout little community like short short text and it's funny that it's not there like you say and it is weird <laughs> i find it I, I keep looking for and it's so funny because in the german recording one of my favorite things about it is that they they just said the i guess the german word for movies that they use is kino and so it's just this like really, uh, really intense like band of Germans going Kino. Like it's just, it's brilliant. <laughs> I love it so much. It always makes me giggle a little bit because it just seems way too Stentorian. Ich muss früh aufstehen, grässlich mein Eutag fängt um sechs an. Kino! Wirklich? Ja, ich geht stempeln. Oddly enough, though, yeah, I think it, it became much darker after its original incarnation. I think they were, I feel like, in listening to it again, because to be honest, I hadn't listened to it in quite a while, the, the world premiere recording. You're right. It is oddly truncated. And there are moments where I was like, why are they cutting this bit of dialogue, but not that one? Like, they're already there. Why did you just pull mm-hmm. that one line out there's just like a half line that you just you know and and the thing is you know and I found out that they had recorded this like two weeks into to the premiere so like Mm. they they were just running it like in full I think it was like two weeks after it had officially premiered so I can't I I can only imagine that they must have been exhausted and I think some of them sound exhausted and I don't blame them I'm glad you said that because Damn, there are parts of this that sound tired. Like, <laughs> right? Very, very tired. I'm, yeah, yeah, and I just, there are times where I feel like Mr. Kevin Anderson does not want to be there. God bless, <laughs> but man, no, he doesn't. He just sounds like he's like, I don't. And to be fair, there, I'm sure there's no accounting for which take they use. Maybe they said, look, this is just a run through sure. and they use that one. I don't know. But there are moments where I was like, he does not like this. Either that or it's his interpretation, which was very staid and very sort of disengaged. Right which that's his call. I mean, I, I can't say that's how I prefer the character to be portrayed, but okay. Right. I mean, if that, but it's hard, it's hard for that to land on a recording, right? Cause all you're yes. getting is the audio. And I think, I think recording is the operative words. I think what I felt in listening to the world premiere recording was that it was very much designed for a studio. And mm. what happens with the American premiere recording is they decided overture to curtain call, we're going to run this show. Mm-hmm. And I think for this piece specifically, that works better. Um, mm. And I find it much more effective because I think once you start cutting and playing God, because there are things that they cut that I wouldn't. And then there's stuff that they left in that I was like, why is that there? Yeah. Um, you know, I think you, I think you really just need to lay it all out for the audience. If that's what, you know, if that's what you're going to do, if you want it to be a highlight album, you can make it a highlight album, which is what so many of the other recordings right. really are. Well, because it's a huge, it's a, it's a, it's a behemoth. Like, and but yeah. like to me, it, it, what felt weird about it was like 
if you you know it's it's already two discs so if you're gonna go to town go in <laughs> right. lincoln like what are you do what are you doing right. like I making these that, weird yeah. why why is like to me the so okay cards on the table <laughs> about <laughs> me and sunset boulevard it's very important because uh, i don't want to spring this on you too late um I, this show <laughs> i don't hate it i don't i don't want to <laughs> say that i hate it okay I, but what this show vexes me okay and I, I feel that it's li- like a lot of movie adaptations. It has a tone that you really have to hit exactly right. That mm-hmm. I felt when I saw it, mm-hmm. they, they they got it right. That was an excellent yeah. experience. And I feel the American premiere recording captures yeah, the correct agreed. tone. But I feel this recording for me really laid bare a lot of my issues yeah. with the way the show is put together, specifically the lyrics, which I think are just bananas in in and like and this this recording because they're not all done yet. Very clearly, they kept working on them. Like there's some sure, there's some exactly. early draft lyrics in this thing that are yeah. just absolutely wild. To be fair to them, though, I the the lyrics are still evolving. So right, exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean, like to this day, I I should say that though I I do. Uh, contract for the kennedy center i am in no way affiliated with the kennedy center because i i did go to see and i will comment on their lovely production that happened this past <laughs> February. Mm-hmm. um but i have in no way affiliated and <laughs> do not speak for them um but yeah I, I even then i was noticing you know it keeps changing it keeps shifting and, and audiences are much more sensitive now and much more aware now and so there were some things in there that you know in 1993 mm-hmm. no one would have banned an eye and now it's like we can't say that you can't say you know Mm-hmm. about bringing black friends to restaurants and how that's problematic for for moviegoers you know like that's you know right. I, I, it, it speaks to a moment in history but it can so easily be taken out of context that it's like just don't just just skip mm-hmm. it over yeah that's so. unfortunate because i really like that section i think that that that's my 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 sort of the thing i i, I find most successful in this show is let's have lunch i think it's one of those really good fun Oh, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's technically the opening number if you call the beginning a prologue. So it's sort of like, it's the thing that kicks us into the world. It's very chaotic. It's so right. much fun. Hi there, Myron. How's it hanging? I've got a date with Sheldrake. I'm shooting a Western down at Fox. How can you work with Daryl? We should talk. Gotta run. Let's have lunch. Morning, Joanna. Got a date with children. I'm shooting a western down at five. I'd really love to read it. We should gotta run, run. Let's have lunch. We want the keys to your car. And it's so long. Like I love sort of how long it is, and very clever thing about it, how we repeat the catchphrase over and over again at the beginning and then we slowly expand how far away from it we get but we keep coming mm. back to it in a very comfortable mm-hmm. way until we cacophonize it at the end and it's, yeah, and yeah. it's gorgeous Which and it so really yeah. it's so great but on this recording it's three minutes and i was really it's just so, like yeah what are we what are we doing guys like why are we why are we out of here this is not like stay I there know. please I, and they figured out later that the thing to do with the whole sheldrake interaction was to put it right, in the number, put it as in the number. right, right. which is yes. so smart yeah I, yeah I was sort of you know it's, it's so funny too because there were a couple I wonder how much of that was Billy Wilder because there were a couple of pointers once he mm. saw the show in London that he mm-hmm. gave them that I think it's ironic again ironically the further away they move from the source material 
the more cinematic and I think the almost yes. the, the more faithful they got, which is yes. weird. But I think they were so, you can see, I mean, they took such big swings. Like they, they literally had Patty LuPone dressed up as Charlie Chaplin at one point. And it's right. like, okay, guys, you know, like, is that, is that what you want? First of all, they put it in the wrong spot. It's not where it is in the film at all. And second right. of all, it's like, is that what you want here? I mean, like it comes at the ladies paying, which is supposed to be this sort of moment of levity and this kind of funny back and forth. Um, right. But I but think that's it actually not... be quite serious. Yeah. Yeah. I, right. It's... And I just wasn't ready for Patty to come out in a mustache. Like I was like, okay. <laughs> well, there she is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and again, a scene lifted right from the movie, but a scene that really has no point. Like it's a, it's a, Anyway, because the movie is such a movie. The right. movie really, the, the thing that makes movies. Yeah, it's a movie about movies, but it's a movie about the like the highs and lows, the joys, and ultimately the dark, the dark, dark, dark side of making movies. Very. And not in a heavy handed um, Babylon kind of, you know, doing coke off somebody's back kind of way, but right. in a much more like, Im like how exactly. this business psychologically will, will beat you into Break the you. ground and yeah. and make you do things that are wild and right. against your own interest and how like out of all the characters in the movie only one of them Cecil B. DeMille playing himself is any kind of like long success everybody else right. is young You're right. and like being disposed or moving out like it's very very disposable and the but like so the but you don't want to do that with a musical you don't want to have the musical do Chaplin or do like you're not going to get Buster Keaton to come and like be cameo in the music like that's not right. how it's not that kind of thing it's camp, you know, really. And it is, yeah. Right. The more you lean into that, the more, again, it's a tone thing for me. I think that probably right. Wilder saw very clearly, like, it's more some like it hot than, you know. Right, yeah. Let's dial this really. down. Yeah, yeah. well, it, Wilder famously said it should be an opera. I mean, I think that was uh, because uh, yeah. Sondheim had had an interest in turning it into a musical. Right. It would have been very interesting. Very and, interesting. Oh, yeah. man, I'd be so curious. Yeah, but, but it, he... And apparently word got to Wilder. I don't know if it was through him or through Pal Prince, who I think was also attached. And mm -hmm. and he said, uh, you know, no, 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 no. It has to be an opera because right. Norma Desmond is an operatic character. And I mean, I think it's not it as is. It is emphatically not an opera. Me having studied opera, I will say that right. it is not. However, I do tend to adjudicate it in sort of the, the world of opera, which is which can help me and hurt me, I think, because sometimes I'm kind of railing against the fandom when they say certain things about it. Um, but I think it's probably the closest outside of Phantom, which is almost mm. through Compose. Evita, Evita is pretty through Compose, and 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 Jesus oh, Christ yeah. Superstar. But those are sort of rock operas. This is this I think is in terms of the scope and what we are used to on the operatic stage, certainly nineteenth century opera. This is probably as close as he gets. Now it, it isn't. There is spoken dialogue. It is broken mm -hmm. up, but it comes close. And I think I think Wilder recognized that. Like you need to mine this. For or those moments that are so emotionally heightened and psychologically effective and not necessarily lean in, like you said, to the camp, because I think it's a very fine line. It is camp. It's inherently campy. It just is. Yeah. I yeah think, like, yeah, I think the more you lean into it, it's like very it, it, walking. We meet there. We meet Norma Desmond staging a monkey funeral. Like that's <laughs> like, if that isn't camp, I oh, don't Lord. know what is. Cause it's a, <laughs> like, if I described, like if I said, there's a scene where when we meet our lead female character, it's a monkey funeral. The odds of you saying like, oh, so it's a John Waters movie are pretty high. So like, I think we're, <laughs> we're like, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it, it, 
it now the context of it in the film is incredibly depressing and right. in the musical is incredibly upsetting i feel like it's a very very upsetting moment when like they walk across the stage oh and, and it's so good though because and I, yeah. this is one of the things i do love about the score are these like cognitive dissonant moments and this sort of juxtaposition so what i love and this is why every movie is a circus is such a good piece one of the reasons is because you do get like especially on the american premiere recording like her sobbing over this monkey and it's so and they've got the they've got the sort of like ethereal creepy max norma themes that's going on underneath it and it's so raw and then like out of nowhere cymbal crash and we're like da 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 you know like yeah. it's it's like it's amazing because you're you just like whiplash yourself you know i'm kind of like wait i was just in that world where everything is dark and depressing and now we're back to this sort of you know somewhat vapid and empty i mean it be, you know it's revealed to be so you know but it's i i thought that was i think that's genius i think like the more you have moments like that where there's like there's a crossover it's mm. very impressive and can really get you you just really oh my god i'm sorry i was just crying with this woman over a dead pet and now you're asking me to have a milkshake like what you know right it's, and it's, it's and your schwabs and it's all yeah it's right all right and it's all happy yeah. and you know kind of larky and everybody's flirting with each other and well, which is what the I mean, but that's the like you said, you need that balance. Yeah. You need to jump around. You need. And that's also why. So I think I would love to know what you think on this. Subject. So famously with this show, if you don't know Sunset Boulevard, you know, <laughs> you know, but you're a music theater person. You probably know that Patti LuPone uh, had this terrible experience um, doing the show in the West. Well, good. I mean, a. a relatively positive experience doing the show in the West End, I think, won an Olivier for it and was expected and told. She was nominated. She didn't get to win. She didn't win. Sorry. I'm sorry. Just to, yeah. She didn't win. <laughs> gotcha. So then she was supposed to come to America to do it. She was... Broadway, yeah. I mean, she was contracted to do it, right? Because that's was. what she sued yeah. him over. Yeah. yeah. She was then replaced very unceremoniously and in some very shady dealings and yeah. sued Angela Weber and won and famously built a pool and named it after him. Um... <laughs> But uh, that's hardcore. That's Sicilian. Like that is. Really it is very Sicilian. This very, very, very <laughs> yes. Friends, close enemies. Close I say that happen. as right. Yeah, right. I say it that feels as, very as a half yeah, Italian. Yeah, yeah. No, she, yeah. <laughs> she knows what she was doing. Um, but I'm so. But I really found, and there's always been this sort of uh, like sentiment I think around the show that like it should have been Patty. There's no I think animosity towards Glenn Close. Luckily, right. it's not right. one of those like it shouldn't have been you. It should have been her. Right. All the animosity, I think, is correctly directed at Andrew Lloyd Webber. That's probably the right <laughs> place to put it. Totally send fair. It, like, like you say, send it to the patriarchy. But it, it is this very, very odd thing. And I was very e interested to listen to that, to listen to, the, to this, to hear that performance. Mm. And I came away with an opinion, but it's based only on the recording, obviously. Right. And I would love to know what you... I mean, just let, let, let's just talk about Patti LuPone. Like, let's just okay. talk about Patti LuPone. What Woo! is she doing? What is, you know, pros and cons, whatever you think, like how you, you feel right. the role written for her and then approached by her, et cetera. Yeah. You know, so I guess my question is Patti LuPone? Question mark. <laughs> question mark. Right. Not my favorite Norma Desmond. I will say that up front. Yeah. Um, I, here's the thing about Patti LuPone. I think she, she is a brilliant actor. I saw her in Masterclass and I saw her just channel Maria Callas for two hours. Like I was shocked. I just couldn't believe because in my head, it's Reno Sweeney, right? Like I was like, I what? This is Evita. Like it was just it was very brilliant performance. I, I, I think that and she is extremely talented. There is no taking that away from her in any way. For me, 
when she performs specifically with music, there's something that takes me out of it. There's something that is meta and this is Patti LuPone performing. And I, and that is a taste thing. And I, I, again, I don't take that. And that is what I feel when I listen to her. It's not, I'm sure it's not across the board because accolades galore and and Mm -hmm. awards to show it. But for me personally, I am taken out of the moment when specifically on this recording, I think I, like you said, I think going on the recording sort of the recording does them all a disservice because I I do get the sense too, that they, because Weber was very big on, um, you know, this thing of, of, uh, of like concept albums, right? Like we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I, yeah. I'm, so I, I think that's kind of what they had in mind for this. I think what they wanted with this was anyone in, you know, the, in posterity, the, the, like the, you know, the future generations will be able to listen to this and sort of like have a templated understanding of what this show was, mm-hmm. as opposed to really getting down and dirty with the story, which is what the American premiere recording seems to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I get a sense of removal from this. I get a sense of I am Patti LuPone, premier Broadway star, Tony winner, who is singing these ballads because that is where my skill set is, and I'm very good at it. And I, I can I can almost hear her telling that to herself when she does it. Which fair enough. I mean, you know, like more power to you, girl. Like everybody deserves to love themselves. I just for me, especially with a character as is so patently not in love with herself and i i can talk to that speak to mm, that later mm. as norman desmond mm-hmm. i i will fight tooth and nail for this well, see, one. Now, so this is interesting this is this is an interesting <laughs> very very interesting point i i i would describe it as we can maybe soften that a little bit by saying self-confident or self-assured yeah, exactly that yeah, like absolutely. but that is a really interesting dissonance i hadn't thought about that like norma's incredibly insecure absolutely and patty lapone isn't and it's right. just and she does not proje- it's one of my problems with her um her fontine mm. another performance shows he did on the west end she did win right. an olivier for that one but yeah. then didn't make the transfer right. and like i think she sings the crap out of i dreamed a yeah, dream like, of no course. no question my but like when sound. it comes but when it comes to breaking my heart, give me Randy Graff every day, twice a day, and oh, you know, Randy twice on Sundays. Graf. I I just think her there's some there's Patty Lapone is not vulnerable. She does not project, or at least in that setting. Yeah, I don't. At again, least in that I, in I that score, because she, she doesn't. Yes, right. mm-hmm. I certainly watched her do it in Masterclass. I think, and I do think yes. the music is the key. I think once she has that sort of cabaret singing gene that happens that's very much like I'm presenting to the audience and here's my song and again it becomes Patty not the character for me mm-hmm. personally you know again disclaimer <laughs> but that that's how right. I feel about it and I think right you're right I mean like self-confident here's the thing with with Norma Desmond is the, the self-confidence is claimed and and so mm. yes that's necessary yes you do want to hear that element of I'm the greatest thing I'm the greatest star of all I am big it's the pictures that got small but beneath that and why she's saying that is because she is so petrified of not being loved, right? right? Like it's yeah. so, and I mean, sorry to do this. And I, you know, unfortunately in comparing all of these women who have done this role, you do fall into the trap that I think the film and the musical set out for you, which is you're sort of doing women a disservice. 
So right. you're sort of like yeah, yeah. boiling it. So I, I hate doing this because I don't want to be like, well, here's, you know, here's what Glenn does and here's what Patty does. Mm-hmm. But, but for me, Glenn Close's performance is on a nice edge. Like you just, it's like this person could break at any second mm-hmm. and it's thrilling but you also get the sense of how hard she's working just to maintain this face, right? And it's one of the things that makes her character so tragic and so ultimately relatable, even though so many people, I mean, I've seen her characterized as a villain. I have, I have spent way too many, sure. many hours of my life being so frustrated with the internet for being like, you know, Norman Desmond, best villain ever. What? <laughs> like, excuse me. <laughs> like, absolutely not. not the villain. Well, I villain. mean. Joe's the uh, villain. Can we do can we agree the patriarchy? If there that. is one, if there is one, I mean that's the other thing. Like it's it's the villain is the right. movie industry. I think exactly, exactly. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the yeah right. Exactly. That's the truth. Yeah, but I Norm is so, only the villain if you think Betty and Joe should absolutely be together. And like, does anyone else not think that Betty and Joe vomit. should absolutely be? high five? Okay, yeah. okay. So here's the thing. Here's where I'm gonna I lose a lot of the fandom and a large part of the of the targeted demographic for musicals. Sunset Boulevard is my favorite love story and it has nothing to do with Betty and Joe and it has everything yeah. to do with Norma and Joe and yeah. I I will absolutely you know how the kids say OTP one true pairing like hardcore for the rest of my life ride or die mm-hmm. they are my favorite fictional couple and there are so many reasons behind that but yeah I have no interest in Betty and Joe being together <laughs> I don't care I find Betty very boring by design by design right she's a foil she's supposed to be that way i i really kind of i i kind of um bristle at a lot of this this sort of post 2000 you know 10 desire to make betty this girl with agency and she's funky and everything it's like while i get that and i'm sure as an actor needing to portray that character you want to imbue it with something you want to give it some kind of depth that's not what she's there to do She's mm-hmm. there to be the sort of antithetical, you know, I mean, it's so, and it's so weird, but like if, if you paint the story in broad strokes, right, it's so problematic. It is, it is very patriarchal, right? It's like, we are supposed, we are being force fed that the woman who is right for this man is the woman who wants to serve his career, takes a, uh, something that he has written and, you know, makes it good, can't do it without him, constantly says, I can't do this without you, needs him, you know, like, it very much leans on him. And, and that the woman who has written her own script, obviously this is much more nuanced than that, but the woman who's written her own script and refuses to um, you know, get, give share credit with him and all this kind of stuff, like she is the bad one, right? Like she's set up as the bad woman for him. And I just, I hate that. <laughs> Hashtag sure. patriarchy, it really bothers me. Um, again, I mean, it, there's much more nuance to that. Obviously Norma's script is terrible and you know, there's all that kind of stuff, but, right. and it, but I think like the the woman who shows any kind of any kind of sense of self or depth is painted as like, no, 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 bad romantic partner. You've got to go with the one who's perky and sweet and only, you know, tells you that you're well, amazing and, all the time. And young. I mean, there's also let's not like let's not just dis- like discount the ageism that's sort of inherent in in the entire production. Right. Which is yeah. so again. Nobody ever talks about how much older Joe is supposed to be than Betty. Everybody talks about how much older Norma right. is supposed to be. I mean, and also it's so funny because over the years, like I, I've had to sit with people and be like, when you think of this story, do you think of Harold and Maude? Like how old do you think Norma Desmond is supposed to be? I mean, people think that it's like supposed to be like she could be his grandmother. And I was like, in no, no. way is that no, in no, the no, script no, no. or it like, I was like, no, 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 no. She's At like most, 40, right? Yeah. Well, I she's mean, 50. She's written 50. As 50. Okay. 
Yeah. But like, and he's written as like 35. Everybody seems to think yes. he's supposed to be 27. No, 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 no. He's, no. he's, he's crested. His career is, right. is on the decline. Yeah, yeah. So he's, like, he's we're talking at most a 15 year age gap, which an adult like what's the well problem? which when you're 35 it doesn't right. it's like, not a thing yeah right cares? yeah but then you turn it back and she's but betty is 22 that is in Loretta, i was gonna say betty is yeah right she's very young <laughs> and it's a little yeah. like okay dude what and again that that is set up as the as the ideal right it's even given they have this duet that is very much sort of plucked from that rogers and hammerstein you know tradition yeah. of like isn't this lovely and sweeping and we're, we're so in love we won't you know we can't we don't care we're too much in love to care which is the title i can control all the things i'm feeling we're floating in mid-air if we are fools well we're too that song every single it's like asking norma herself to listen to it i just will not i'm like no i can't i won't i refuse to believe that they're in love forget it it's boring it's it's also not a good song but the uh (laughs) just to be just to be entirely candid on how i feel about that part of the show but it, it it is a real it's so funny because what it what this sort of thing does is really reveal how nuanced the film is and how you are like like you say I think Betty is for 1950, 1950, right? It's when the film came out. So for 1950, yeah. Betty is incredibly full right. of agency. And I've absolutely like, you know, heard that before. Somebody did say that to yeah. me. Somebody who was alive at that time was like, no, that would have mm-hmm. been a really forthright woman. Oh, you know, yeah. Somebody looking at to launch her own career. And fair. I mean, absolutely. But again, I'm looking at this through the lens of opera, right? And, and what you end up having to do a lot in opera is, and it's usually revealed by voice type. And, you know, so like if you have the foil for the woman who is, I'll say problematic, I don't think she's problematic, but, you know, the woman who like, if you were to look at this traditionally would be considered an at issue, would have something to her past or something like that. She would have, which also happens to be my voice type, the mezzo-soprano voice. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and then the the sort of ingenue who's the better foil, who's the better, right, would be a soprano, correct. And so I'm thinking of Carmen specifically where... Carmen has, you know, is written as this very rich voice. She's supposed to be somebody who is, you know, very comfortable with her sexuality, a, a criminal, a, you know, it's, it's again, highly problematic because she's, she's a gypsy and, you know, it's anyway, it's, right. but then the foil is this very, and all of her music is very almost religious soprano who is set up as like the right partner for the, for the lead male. Right. And, and so that I, I guess I'm sort of looking at it that way. And that's kind of what I want. I mean, when people attempt to imbue Betty with this, you know, agency, I get sort of annoyed because I'm like, no, 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 that's not what we're here for. Norma's fulfilling that function. Like the, the agency and the excitement and the sort of womanliness is already, <laughs> that position has already been filled. <laughs> like, sure. So we, do, you know, like, and I just sort of, I find it sort of unnecessary. I, it's cute. And it's, you know, like it, it's what you want to do with the role. And I, I, I sympathize that it's not a very big role and I'm sure you want to give to it as much as you want to, you know, as much as you'd like and, and, and 
make it exciting, but I don't think it's written to be. I don't well, think but I think we lose the what what the problem is is that so Betty's written to be, you know, we're talking about like it's funny to put it this way because they're both fictional characters, but we're 13 years before Peggy Olson, you know, or 10 years right. before Peggy Olson and Mad Men, right. right? And so like keep that in your head, and then like Betty's doing that before Peggy, so like right. Betty is is no, way out and about. Absolutely but, fair. But, but what gets lost is then so what you if you like if you amp up her agency so a modern audience understands, if you right. make her that what you you've done is taken her out of proportion to the other two. Then you have to ramp up the other two characters. Right. Too, exactly. Right. To have more agency over. And that doesn't make any sense. Like it exactly. doesn't, you, which you have to, at a certain point with period pieces, you have to sort of just rely on the fact that the art, like you just have to be like, well, the audience has to understand this isn't now, yeah, you know, I, like I know. And I the more you try to like, update these characters to take them out of the period especially when they were written in like the, the film is contemporary the film takes right. place in 1950 so right. and, and it debuted in just take the way the character is written and like and that's what you use because that's what it, it's not like it's a period piece that were then period again like it, it's you know right. it's not an ouroboros well, so just trust the source material to take you where you're going I, yeah. I agree i mean i i have this issue with hamlet i've seen so many hamlets that are like ophelia has her own agency no she doesn't and that she is her tragedy doesn't. right that's you know, sad that, right like right like i was kind of like i don't i know and it, it decidedly not and that is why yeah. she ends up where she ends up and that's what we're supposed to be focusing on this idea like you said it's like it's not today she didn't have the same opportunities she couldn't stretch her wings you know like yeah that really does drive me crazy I, I think you're right well that brings us to this new production that's going up in London right now that is making oh, such a huge, okay a huge slash uh <laughs> time of recording yeah well I don't I don't know I haven't seen it I you know sure. I don't know but the, the bits and pieces I'm getting from the internet are that they've like rewritten Betty's character she's very savvy she's very with it she writes on an iPad like yeah. It's, well, there's uh, a lot. I've we've all seen the pictures, and it 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 certainly is a you know. I think a lot said, isn't good. You know, Evan Ho, hold my beer, kind of production, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, that was funny. Yes. I saw the Oklahoma, and I said, "Hold my uh, yeah. beer." Yeah, that was good. It it is a real like okay, fine. Um, because the <laughs> show, it, it's a real like. I mean, it it's such a hard issue with adaptation and revival and right. update right. is to to make it appropriate for a modern audience to understand what's going on and i think that when you do that when you when you stop this is this, this issue of I've, 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 this, this is a drum i've banged about company a lot where mm. um when you there's always this run to like modernize company to, to, right. to you know set well, it yeah, the recent context. revival yeah right right and I think the recent revival was pretty successful because of the the of the the gender identity the gender flipping. Flip. But like yeah. anytime I saw like company in the '90s set in the '90s, it doesn't make any sense. Like it just mm. you, you've taken it out of it's so of its time. But the themes are timeless. That's what makes the show timeless. It's not the like if it's timeless, you can set it anywhere and it works. Like that's what timeless right. means. And I think the themes in this show are similarly timeless. I and agree. If you just lean into the absurdity and the over the topness of everybody and how, because well, the great thing about Norma to me is she goes for the highest highs and the lowest lows. Like Thank that's you. the thing of it. It's, she, she, she lives <laughs> everything in the extreme because she's, she's it totally immersed in the deeply. fantasy. Yeah. And so when she lives in the fantasy, when the fantasy is peaking for her, it's amazing. Mm. And when the fantasy bottoms out, she tries to kill herself. 
Like right. that's the right. that's the dichotomy you're living with. Right. And Betty Or kill is, someone else. <laughs> or kill someone else, right? As it ultimately <laughs> turns out. And and yes. like actually d- disassociate and then she's, you know, right. she's somewhere else. Um but like Betty and Joe are are living their own kind of delusions about circumstance. I think Betty's is much like because the funny thing about Betty to me is I always saw Betty as a very self-actualized, forward-thinking, career-oriented woman in the 50s, which is interesting who, while writing a script with somebody, falls into the trap she's trying to avoid, where she sort of right. ends up falling in love with him, even right. though she shouldn't, and she knows she shouldn't, and I don't think she's actually in love with him. I think she's just lonely, and he's listening to her, and he's there. So right. like, And she, they're writing a love story. And they're writing together, right, right, which is right. very churning. And they're yeah. writing, and the musical does a very good job of sort of illustrating how they're really writing their story Each other, kind of exactly accidentally right. writing their own thing. and i conversely i think they also do a good job of explaining that norma is writing her story as well in writing salome that they're that they're kind oh, of oh sure she, absolutely inflates you know that she becomes they become one and the same by the and end I, of it i noticed this time um which i didn't i hadn't ever clocked before because I, I don't know if it's on the premiere recording is that there's a few times where they mentioned that norma started in movies when she was 17 and 16, it, it comes Max up. Max says 16, yeah. Max says 16 when he met her. I think yeah. DeMille says 17. Somebody says yeah. like, whatever. Mm-hmm. But that number comes up. And Salome is how old, does she 16. say? 16. Oh, well done. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I yeah. really, this time noticed that, was that there there is a real, like, she was kind of too young to, pace, to play, too right. old to play Salome when she started. That was right. like only about a year, yeah. but still like, you know what I mean? Like this is a part she's literally never been old, like been the right, right. age for. And that's fascinating to me is that she that's like- That's really good, yeah. Good draw point. that attention. Uh, to the fact I that she's, it's so diluted. It's been diluted from the right. Joke. Well, I mean, that's always, that's always a joke, right? That always gets a laugh in, in, right. in many it's a great joke. I've seen when he that says how old 16. is Salome and she says 16. And 16. It's, it is a, I mean, that's an A plus joke. That is an absolute A plus <laughs> It is a very good joke. Yeah. It's just deadpan. Yeah. Like the fact that there's just, no irony. She's just no, like, right. Absolutely not. It's like, does not, yeah. she does not see the problem. Also, right. she doesn't like, see what? the problem that there's no dialogue in the script. Yeah, right. What? Why do we need any? I can say anything I want. Talkies suck. It's 1950. And talkies like talkies are on, they've only been around for 23 years, like or however 13 oh years. Like, they're definitely Poor on their way Norma. out. Totally. Yeah. yeah. It's so true. And actually that brings that brings me to Max though. And that's an that's another aspect yes. of the, the story that I I find frustrating because I think the sort of general narrative in terms of people who view the film and who view the musical are all like this poor man. He was, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it, her first husband. And she kicked him to the curb and now she's got him working for her as a butler and oh my god and what you know and he's got to sit there while she's in love with other people and how terrible of her hang on a minute right hang on i mean i'm not saying you know this is all twisted don't get me wrong sure. <laughs> it's all a mess it's all noir there are no good it guys is. folks there's right. no one to it's, hang on it to it is a like, just, yeah. hot mess however he says I, I met her when she was 16 years old now he's supposed right. to be He's supposed to be maybe 10, like 15 years, 10 older, years than older than her. Yeah, right. I was going to say. Yeah. So that means that this man was in his 30s. Right. Mm-hmm. That that is that's highly problematic. So, oh, I mean, yeah. I, I read it. I always the way I look at his character is not so much like, oh, this poor believer dude who has to sit there and serve her. I read it as like his atonement for, oh, my God, like I took advantage of this mm-hmm. teenager. And, you know, who knows what their relationship was actually like and who knows why she said yes to marrying him. And, you know, I, I always I think that, like, this is his lot. I think he sort of decided, you know, no, 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 I I uphold this dream for her because I messed up severely 
Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, yeah, I always, I, I always feel so bad because she always gets the short end of the stick on that argument. It's always like, she did this to him. And it's like, well, right. have we ever considered that he did this to her? And he was, you know, very complicit in the sort of breaking down of her psyche and is now standing by her side because he feels he has to. Well, and he stays. Right. I mean, it right. Really, he could like, just go. It's, it's, at any point he could just like he gave up what is ostensibly a very successful film career right to to serve her what does that say about like you say about him and about how he feels and about like there's nothing healthy here in any direction you can take it as atonement you can take it as obsession like this is the the only way he can be close to her and so this is what he's going to do however you want to take it it's not great either way it's really really weird Right. But the thing that bothers but me you're is right. yeah. somehow shifted that it's like, it's all something she has done as opposed to, you know, oh, um, he actually just makes this decision. Yeah, I think I think it's and, and it might not be a decision she really enjoys. I mean, you know, it's, this idea like, oh, isn't it lovely that he, isn't it romantic what? that he does that for her? She's like, no, maybe she's like, dude, can you leave? Well, but also, does she even know it's him? Like, there's That's a real a debate. Like, it's never really i think she probably does too at the end of the day but like it she never she never addresses it you know it's a scene we see separately with max and joe both in the film and in the musical yeah where he talks about how he was a director he discovered her he made her a star or helped make her a star in any event and now he's here and like there's a non-zero chance he's lying first of all right right but like we'll take him at his word because it's eric von stroheim in the in the movie and so that's probably like again <laughs> he was supposedly pretty sketchy though right like didn't they say they could never figure out exactly where von stroheim came from like, yeah, exactly it was, it was, he was, it was like weird like what exactly is your lineage sir yeah exactly he... <laughs> yes he was always very cagey about that sort <laughs> yeah. of thing but again a guy pretty much playing himself a, a sure, european exactly. director right you know we're supposed he to assume Swanson, that's who it is. Yeah, exactly. exactly so it's all it's all supposed to be of a piece but you know, she could not quite realize it's him. She could sort of not fully understand why he's there, but she's not asking any questions. Like, it's mm. just, there's not, the, the the story is so full of questions. And they I all agree. lead you back to the same answer, which is that the movie business sucks. Right. Like, that's, that nobody gets out of this clean. Alive, yeah, yeah, that you and all it's give really, good pieces of yourself. Right. Except for like the only happy people in the movie industry, I guess, are like Cecil B. DeMille, who's at the peak right. of success. Like he's everybody man. loves him, but mm. he's a man. And he's 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 the only one left. He has waded through this because they also right. mention there's three <laughs> directors of promise. One's right. Max. One's a guy we never see. And one's right. Cecil B. DeMille. And one's then, a guy who directed a film that, that was heavily right. <laughs> heavily and then <laughs> and, and he's out. The KKK, so let's forget that. Right. Dude. And so yeah. he's gone. Yeah. yeah. And then because the only like the people who are happy in the movie industry are like Hawkeye, the spotlight operator and Jonesy, the security guard who like have been there for 50 years doing the same job. And it's just a job, you know, like they just, they have a job. They go to their job in the morning and they leave at five or six and they're done. Mm. And those are the people who seem to be working through it. And everybody else is different, different degrees of unhappy. (laughs) Mentally healthy. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, yeah, but it's, I, I think there's something beautiful to that. And I do think, I mean, mm-hmm. getting back to this sort of romance that I think one of the things that makes the Norma and Joe relationship so poignant is that I, I, I don't know that before he meets her, he's been very good at feeling things. I don't, I, I get sure. the sense that he is somebody who 
you know, is very detached in general, you know, forget the mm -hmm. fact that he's got this cynicism that's been built in over his time in Hollywood. I think he very much doesn't, doesn't let things in. And I mm -hmm. think she, like you said, extreme highs, debilitating lows, that's all she is, right? Like that all she is, is feeling. And I, I think what I, one of the many things I love about them is that I think she wakes that up for him. I think it sort of asks him to think of things outside of himself, asks him to love and care for and be concerned about things other than himself. And I don't know that the relationship with Betty happens without the relationship with Norma, because I think, I think she awakens that for him. I think there's something sure. about her that there's a spark there in terms of between the two of them. And also in terms of this light that goes on of like, oh God, I'm not the only person on the planet. And I maybe need to, you know, think that my actions have consequences and how they affect the people I care about. So, well, yeah. I, because I, it's I, important to remember, he does like the thing that he, he decides to leave and he's going to leave her. And then the thing that draws him back is that she does try to kill herself. And he, right. out of whatever reason, he does go back at that point that's, like out of a sense of oh, guilt or a sense so of caring. much to talk about here <laughs> there is but the, but it isn't like right. it's not like she didn't blackmail him back i mean she did a thing obviously and it was emotionally manipulative and, and all that blah 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 but, but like she knew i don't know that she knows like the thing is i think she genuinely yeah maybe not there was a part of her that wanted to die i mean like this idea because she sure. basically joe but joe becomes proxy for her entire audience right and i think at some right. point she feels that if she can't elicit love from this guy where is she gonna get i mean there's no way that the audience will come back to her right and so right. i think he kind of i think he's synonymous with the audience in her mind and and so the and i also think by the same token i don't know that the audience would mean that much to her if he were constant if he were somebody that she could rely on but anyway that that's neither here nor there but yeah i mean i think you have so many clues that his connection to her is is much deeper than this idea of like oh but she's got money i think you get you know the, one of my favorite moments and oh my god Betty Buckley can just stab me and <laughs> walk over my tombstone with this because she killed me with how beautiful she made this moment but when she says to him you know like when she confesses that she's in love with him and she says you know he and he says well what right do you have to take me for granted and mm -hmm. all this kind of stuff and there's this attempt on his part to make it into a into a transactional thing when she's trying to right. make it an emotional thing and she says, okay, well, what you want, what you're trying to say here, what you'd like to say is that you don't want me loving you. Isn't that true? And he can't say it. Like, mm -hmm. that's the thing that gets me is like, and that's, and she slaps him there, which I'm like, oh my God, she's not slapping him to be a bitch. She's slapping him because he's being a coward. Like there's feeling yeah. there, but he doesn't know what to do or how to handle it. And so she's just kind of like, how dare like say it then you know say the thing right. if you can't say the thing then what are we doing here yeah I I love that moment so much but yeah no of course I mean him returning to her I think you know okay yeah you're right guilt but also somebody that becomes incredibly integral and incredibly important to your life and then suddenly you're faced with the concept of them not being there anymore yeah that's what, what I mean. It is, yeah. th there is a he. It, it's very important to the story that he chooses to go back I he is not blackmailed he is not um you know tricked none of that it is and there's no promise of it of of money or production or anything right. no he, it's just he calls is... back to get his clothes and that's how he finds out she's trying right. to kill herself and then he willingly leaves Every... the party and goes back and cuts off the rest of his friends and right. decides he's going to commit to this thing right 
So he chooses to do it, whatever it, this relationship. I don't mean right. she's a thing. I mean, the, the, the relationship is a thing. <laughs> you just um, objectified her. No, I kidding. did, yeah. I, uh, I meant the house. No, I no, exactly. House. Like, there, well, that's why the uh, fact yeah. that it happens on New Year's is so, you know, dramatically yes. eloquent because it's a new beginning, right? Like, it's, you know, right. it ends up being horrible and it is the wrong choice for whatever yes. reason. But for everybody in that like, just, moment i mean one yeah. of the beautiful things about the relationship is that it sort of only works within her fall four walls right like it really yeah. only makes sense and can sustain itself in this fantasy world you know it and and oh they just i love them both so much though because they're both so bad at communicating <laughs> and it's but it's just it's so beautiful and it's so funny because i think ironically you're sort of set up to believe that she's the one who's worse at human interaction, but I think she's actually much better. I think she's sure. much more vocal and and much more in tune with what she's feeling and and than he is. He, I think he's just really at sea. I think he's a real a real problem. But um, yeah, I I do I really love them. It's it's so it, I and I think it makes for great theater in addition to a great film. But I think it makes for great theater watching these characters struggle with this elephant in the room of like, okay, so I'm attracted to this person, but this person is problematic for many reasons. And I don't think this is the right thing to do, but what do I do when they mean so much to me? And it's, it's, yeah, it's really, it can be amazing to watch. I mean, I've certainly watched some actors act the heck out of it. Oh yeah. And well, and very effective. going back to what we were talking about earlier about, about Kevin Anderson and his interpretation <laughs> of Joe Gillis, though, I think that his, I think, he does sound exhausted on the cast recording, but he, <laughs> I think also there, there has to be this give and take and balance between Norma and Joe. I agree. And I think that Patty's performance is so intense and overbearing mm. that he kind of has to bring it back a little bit to be a little more realistic. And that's why I don't think it works as much. Whereas right. for me, Glenn Close is letting, at least on the recording, the material do a lot of the heavy lifting for her right. and she's keeping right. it a little more grounded so that Alan Campbell can come out and let's be honest, chew the scenery for a little while. And oh, like, cause like, well, I mean, like, listen, <laughs> listen to him. I'll tell you a funny story about Alan Campbell in a second, but uh, oh, okay. I don't know him personally, but it, it's just uh, a funny little thing that happened. But like him singing Sunset Boulevard, which is objectively, I think, a, a very nice badly song. written song. Yes, because <laughs> uh, Boulevard is a terrible word to sing as a and hook. rhymes word. with nothing, yeah. Sunset Boulevard, twisting Boulevard, secretive and rich, a little scary. Sunset Boulevard, tempting Boulevard, waiting there to swallow the unwary. But his performance being so braggadocious and so like full of itself, it works a lot better than Kevin Anderson's performance. Sunset Boulevard, twisting Boulevard, secretive and rich, a little scary. Sunset Boulevard, tempting Boulevard, waiting that you swallow the unwary. Like, man, this song isn't that great, buddy. You can't, like, you've really got to bring something else to it. Uh, so I really found myself appreciating Alan Campbell's performance as being, like, Art. he's so up and, like, high and over the, and really, I feel like he's trying to convince himself he yeah. feels the way That's he feels. It. Yeah, exactly. That he's just as deluded as she is in a different direction. And I did not get that from from Kevin Anderson. He always felt a little more put upon as a like like guy who just sort of wandered in because it is happenstance. It's that terrible thing right, of like right. plot contrivance where like Fate, he yeah. happens to turn into her driveway. <laughs> Your car busts a tire, <laughs> right? And he happens to be on the day where 
she's having the funeral. So when she walks in, when he walks in, he's not like immediately dismissed. He's invited right. in for a minute. They think uh, he's someone else. Yeah, that's contrivance, obviously. But like sure. all contrivance, so it's fine. <laughs> when you have Alan Campbell, Ugh. like really hitting the lines, like when he goes like, I, I love on the premiere recording when he goes like, when he's talking to Judy. Hume. I'm sorry, Mr. Gillis. I couldn't see the point of it. Oh, what sort of material would you suggest? James Joyce? Dostoyevsky? I think pictures should at least try to say a little something. Oh, I see. You're one of the message kids. I'd expect you to have turned on Gone with the Wind. And... Oh, that was me. Like the way he accentuates <laughs> those words is just so okay, like funny. My bro. No, I, I don't. I don't think it's a problem. I'm just saying, like he's. We're making. We're making choices. We are making big True. choices. But I think again, I think, I think that might be limited to the recording because I. I mean, like I saw mm. him. Oh yeah, 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 Three different Normas, and I watched oh, okay. Jimmy Cater's performance to each of them, and I thought he did such a beautiful job each time. I just and I think what I think he knows as an actor, which is is that like yes, Joe Gillis is a laid back, cynical guy. But that doesn't read instantly on the stage. You have to be engaged right. to seem disengaged. Yes. So I, yeah, I think he, he, and whenever I saw him, he struck a brilliant, I have yet to see him vested in my, in my many sunset travels. Um, yeah, he's, he is my favorite Joe Gillis hands down. It, I think. So here, yeah. here's the, uh, here's the funny oh, story please. about me, I'm very me and Alan Campbell. And it's just one of those weird things. So I went to see sunset boulevard at a matinee sunday matinee nice. with a school group and oh. it was betty buckley and george hearn and it was a performing performing arts school group and uh and um and alan campbell was off it was his understudy ah. and it was cool like it was really neat to see this guy do the thing and he was very good and i don't remember his name but he was really really good and so but it was always one of those things where it's like i didn't see alan campbell you know what i mean like he's the <laughs> I saw George Hearn and I saw Betty Buckley but did, and Alice Ripley. But I did not see Alan Campbell. And so then years go on and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, years later, he's doing the national tour of Contact in the Boyd yes. role. Yes. And I missed him. And, I went to see that and I missed so, it. So it's coming to D.C. and I have I am writing for the college newspaper. So I have press night tickets. Nice. So my girlfriend, now my wife and I go okay. and we see contact and in the program <laughs> it says it. Al, he's not in it it's his understudy again <laughs> i have never seen alan campbell perform oh. live and despite having gone see two shows that he was in i just happened to never have seen him so i cannot speak to the quality of his life no, no, yeah he was really good i have to say yeah. he was just he was just so good at it he was just really good at i believe it from the recording was. i absolutely yeah. believe it yeah, yeah I, I just remember and i don't i hate to single out any single norma that he that he was with but I, I do the Betty Buckley and I only saw them once together but that, that really stood out I mean I don't know you know it's funny because Betty Buckley has a lot of her stuff here in Boston she she donated a lot of her her notes to Boston mm. University and for a time there was like a little display and it was just like my favorite thing to do to go to the library and just like take notes because they had some of her stage notes and stuff but she had an mm. opening night letter from him that was I mean I, I feel bad because I hope well she put it on display so I guess it can't be that bad but it was very much like I hope we get lost in each other's eyes. Like it was something very intimate and and lovely mm. and just sort of like, and I, that is what their, their performance was. It was very, I mean, I watched him light up whenever she walked on the stage and it was just, and, and I think that was conscious. I think this, I remember reading an interview where he said, you know, like I wanted the performance, you know, to be catered to her and, and, and she needed that to motivate the performance. She needed to feel adored. And so I did that for her. So, yeah, but I think he was just really a, a sensitive actor and, and just, just good at 
Got it. And I love his sound. I mean, I, I think one of the things too mm-hmm. that you get the trouble that you get with with Joe Gillis is that a lot of times they're like needs to be young, and then he ends up sounding like a teen. Like, right. like I'd really prefer a dude. I'd prefer a guy. It, it's just yeah, the baritone, yeah. the baritone kind of sound that he's got going. I'm I'm down. I don't particularly enjoy it when he's like could sounds like you could substitute in a pop singer. Well, because he shouldn't be. Like, I mean, if I you agree. again go back to the movie, it's William Holden. Like, it's not right. some fly by night, whatever. It's not Tony Curtis, even. It's William Holden, right. who is, right. you know, he's got lines on his face and he's Stalag 17 and right. he has lived. Like, he just looks, he's a lived in person. And that's who you need to play Joe Gillis. Because otherwise, it, it doesn't make sense. No, frankly. it doesn't. Like, and it's, yeah. And you don't understand the sort of pull and the kind of, you know, where the cynicism would come from. And yeah, it's, um, when you also, the ending then doesn't make sense because, like, for him, when she calls Betty and he says, you know what, never mind, come it. over. Like, Love that let's scene. all, let's Love all it. just be out in the open about what we're doing here. Oh, let's all best. be honest about who we are and right. what we want from each other and stop pretending. And you really get the sense of like, this guy is just, I don't know where he thinks he's going after this, right. but he's just had enough with Los Clean Angeles. slate, we're like, done. He's yeah. just like, I can't live in any kind of delusion anymore. You and I aren't in love. You and I might be in love, but it's incredibly unhealthy. So we're probably gonna, <laughs> we probably shut this down. We're and like, that. You know, like I just have to get free. And of course he makes that decision about a week too late, but right. it is like, it it's, that that only makes sense in a character who has lived a life and has understood the difference between success and failure and realizes that like success and failure in the movie industry are ostensibly the same thing. Right. And I said, I think I that's really fair. I've said ostensibly a lot tonight. Oh, it, I love it. it. it that's fair. a great word. Don't worry. <laughs> um, and it works. But, it, you know, they're not. Yeah, there's no difference between being a success and being a failure except money. And he's right. not happy with the money. So forget and it. Norma like, has all the money and she's not happy. Yeah, either. exactly. Yeah. So I mean, I forget think. It. And, you know, it's so and this is this is going to circle me back to the score a little bit. But I think one of the things that the uh, world premiere recording misses out on, and I, I don't know that all of it was um, inherent in the score yet. I think they the, you know, probably happened in the tinkering that they did when they brought it to L.A. But the, I don't know if you noticed, but the, the music that's underneath in the American premiere recording, the music that's underneath the phone call is is the perfect year. But it's in minor key, which is so awesome. I did it because I need you. Look at me. Look at my hands, look at my face, look under my eyes. How can I go back to work if I'm wasting away? No, don't stand there hating me, Joe. Shout at me, strike me, but say you don't hate me. Joe! Yeah, so like there's some really intelligent things that are happening in the orchestrations that I really, really enjoy. As a matter of fact, I, I do... And that, that sort of gets me to the subject of keys, though, which I did want to get to because sure. I'm so, so mad about the fandom and how in terms of the comparisons that they make for all these women, that one of the things they bring out all the time is the keys in which Norma's songs are performed, which, again, <laughs> coming at this from an opera perspective, I want my sort of problematic female characters to have a deeper tone of voice. Mm-hmm. So. I don't understand this thinking because Patti LuPone's keys were a bit higher, although that's sort of a misnomer. And I did sort of write down all the key I went through. Oh my gosh, did you really? I try, I hope, like, please. (laughs) My music theory is like really bad, but I- Probably better than mine, so go right ahead. Well, I went through and did all of Norma's sort of big numbers. It's Surrender with One Look, New Ways to Dream, Mm -hmm. and As If We Never Say Goodbye, her sort of four solos. And there is this like thing that happens when people start discussing this, you know, these sort of, all the diehard fans where it's like if it's not in patty's keys 
it's not real. Like somehow yeah, it became no, this thing of like, and the thing that's so frustrating to me is that when I actually went and looked at it musically, Patty and Glenn sing Surrender in the same key. Mm-hmm. They start with one look in the same key, but then Patty modulates to something that's like a step and a half higher than what Glenn. I mean, and again, like that's not a big deal. Who cares? Like, I don't understand right. why that that drives me a little crazy because there's nothing that says you can't belt in that range. There's nothing that says you can't make that effective. That is just like buying into this weird myth that higher singing is better singing. And I have to say that as a mezzo-soprano, I take umbrage. <laughs> like, the, the issue is the tone, right? I mean, and, and again, that's a very opera way of looking at it. But for me, I want to know what the tone quality is. What's the color of the sound? I kind of don't care, especially in musical theater, which like, I mean, not to not to poo-poo it at all, but I mean, the range is so different than what is requested of you in opera that it's just kind of like, I don't, if she hits a C or a C sharp, I really don't care. Like why, yeah. you know, I well, find that the, very frustrating that that's yeah. sort of used as a criteria for whether or not the norma is a good norma. Yeah, no, like, I, I, I find that all incredibly boring <laughs> in, for like when people talk, like, cause it's not just, sunset boulevard everyone's heard this discourse before from your second year music theater student who is just like oh well you know they had to take it down for so and so it's like well you know kiss my butt whatever it like was it was it good discipline right like if it were an opera then yeah that's a problem i mean in opera you can't do that because the whole thing is through composed and if you you know like all right but here you have a start stop with the orchestra. I mean, if you can get it transposed for them, well, who cares? Why I mean, wouldn't you do like right? It's not, Why wouldn't you show your doing. voice in its best light? Right, exactly. right. And it's that's not what we're doing here. Like the, it's not like you say. It's not who sings highest sings best. It's who sings best sings best. Like that's what the the thing is. And who mean, performs best performs best. Right. Like it's not. It's just such a reductive. It's this terrible thing that I think music theater fans can do, which mm. is reduce everything to pluses and negatives in this sort of right. like objective sense of like right well if they they use too much vibrato or i don't like her Ugh. vowels or i don't like blah, blah, whatever right. but like, that's all personal that's all your taste right There's that's all you There's no objective that. yeah exactly right. Right. So, and, yeah and that is fair and i mean you can have a really long conversation about the merits of, of patty lapone's voice versus glenn close's voice if you want i mean i don't you know glenn you can close have a whole had... conversation about patty lapone's vowels like i think yeah, we really right. like or the fact that she like <laughs> syncopates whenever she feels like it and just kind Right. doesn't care what the rhythms are which right. is you know like she, Again, can, she can do what whatever she wants, but right yeah like I, that's fine but and i mean i i thought stephanie j block was a brilliant norma desmond and absolutely broke my heart and and brought me back mm-hmm. to being a tween again and and i was very very grateful but there was something she was doing and as if we never said goodbye that like was just a slight it was a note off it was like a flare that she was giving it and i was like mm, that's not the right thing but that's me mm. like i don't you know like and if, right. if angela weber hears it and he doesn't care who cares i mean i don't right. know, he wrote it so it, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me that that's like the criteria on which we judge this. Like I feel like Glenn Close, not a singer overtly, although she did have some singing, you know, in her background. She had been in a choir when she was younger and everything, and she was just like out of practice, quote unquote, by the time she played Norma. But like that woman knows what a song is meant to do. Yes, and I don't, you know what I mean? Like I and I think through through sheer force of will, if you want to call it that. It works. I, it just it, it's really sure. hard not to, to to listen to that performance and say this isn't working. And yeah. I I think too that by the end of her run, she was she was a much more aligned singer. I think that's part of it too. Like people get upset with the sort of like different sounds in different registers, and they make fun yeah. of Glenn a lot. Although the 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 um the score does 
do her any favors because there's a lot of, especially in Salome, there's a lot of like octave jumps that are designed to make your registers flip. Like it's like, okay, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it's not supposed to sound pretty because you're jumping between these two things. But, um, you know, people sort of make fun of that. And I, it's like, all right, that's just an issue of practice. And I think by the time she finished the run, it was a much more aligned voice and it was I, I think I always found her really impressive I thought she was impressive when she did it again I went to see her in London flew to London this year went to see it oh jeez well I have family there this is a little bit of an easy um but situation. even so like yeah yeah no it was really we kind of tacked it onto this big trip to see the family which was really really fun but um they yeah no and I saw her do that do it on on uh, Broadway I had my sort of like reservations about the production but Gwen is Gwen mm-hmm. I mean sure. what are you gonna do she's awesome there's really yeah. that is you know that is a lot of power in a little lady <laughs> she's really tiny <laughs> i saw her on the street once i absolutely ran into her on the street once and i i didn't say anything because i was just too freaked out sure. and she was shorter than me i had some heels on but she was shorter than me and i just like could not handle that this god from my tween years right. was shorter than me it was like, about very, presence. Very weird experience it's all yeah, about presence was, yeah yeah she absolutely knows how to if you got presence she, that's right dude yeah no i i feel very protective of all of them really i mean they all got such a raw deal with it because it it takes you out of the story i'd rather you know like we can talk about the sort of the divaness and the you know the dueling divas and stuff all day long but for me what has always drawn me to that was the story and i think the music is helpful i think the music enhances the story i don't know that it does what what music does in an opera which is like it's the driving emotional force i think it's it runs complementary i don't think it's sure. necessarily the only thing it's got going i think some of some of my absolute favorite scenes are scenes that have underscoring but are just dialogue and and i mm-hmm. you know i'd rather hear those that's how i you know that's one of the ways i look to the performance to see if it's working for me like how's that scene gonna go as opposed to did she belt the right notes and as if we never said goodbye you know like it's like all right, right. but i'd much you know which i love i love as if we never say goodbye i mean please it makes me cry <laughs> it just does mm. you know it's it's beautiful it's such a beautiful beautiful moment emotionally and I mean I was actually at the final performance on Broadway and oh wow <laughs> yeah it's kind of hard I, I'll never get that out of my head because and unfortunately I feel bad like because anytime I go to see another production it's like well you can't beat That's, that moment yeah. because like, <laughs> but sorry but the light when the light hit Elaine Page mm-hmm who I found out years later and I think she revealed years later was going through cancer treatment at the time Mm -hmm. um when it hit just the light just the light hitting her the place erupted and it was just like Mm -hmm. the most electric she didn't even sing a note it was just the most exciting thing to be a part of it felt very interactive and we all were just such huge fans obviously so yeah, it's, I, I, I feel bad because I feel like, you know, I was thinking that if we were going to talk about scandals, I was going to have to say which one because there were so many. <laughs> there really were. And I feel so bad because, again, like it takes away from what I think, you know, when done, certainly in a way that, that I, the way that's in my head can be so incredibly effective and like earth shattering. Like I said, it kind of like warped my DNA around. Like I, it's just like never, I look at a lot of things through this lens now that I don't, you know, I would never have if I had never encountered, never encountered mm-hmm. this. So yeah, but I mean, <laughs> there are other recordings. We can go the other recordings. There's tons and tons of that. No, I, yeah. I think that yeah, it, it's there's there's there's. I mean, obviously, this is this is sort of could be an endless conversation. I know uh, Let's in do that it. sense because you have so much. Well, yes, unfortunately, though, we have to wrap it up <laughs> because now I have to like the 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 last thing I have to ask you. 
which I Uh-oh. fear is, I hope Kenny warned you about this because I fear otherwise this might be its own episode. What, Eleni, is your favorite song from Sunset Boulevard? And oh, I will it's... say to make it a little easier, unless you know the answer right at the top of your head. Mm, do you know, I do, do you I know, know it, yeah. Oh, no, okay, a, hit me. What is it? It's the perfect year. I mean, like, you know, like you, you give me my favorite love story. Ah. You, 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 give it, you give it a tune. I'm okay. No, but okay. I, and again, I think it has, it has so many functions and I, it, and it is it, it, written very cleverly because it starts out as a, as a habanera, as a tango, do, 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 that rhythm. And then mm-hmm. it segues into a waltz, which is so much more inherently romantic in the Western world. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's so much more phantasmic and, and, you know, something we associate with people falling in love. And I think, you know, like we said, that it only works within those four walls, but I think, Again, if it's played right, it's it's magical. I mean, I, and I have to say that the the Kennedy Center production, I think, handled that quite beautifully. I remember thinking, oh, my God, like it was it brought back that magic to me in a way that I hadn't experienced in, a, in quite a long time. I was like, oh, this is what the original was like. Like it was it was like, oh, I, it was bringing back to me a lot of memories. And I was really very uh, moved by it. Getting back to the Kennedy Center, one of the reasons why I liked that performance was they were very conscientious about like, well, all of these labels that we give this woman come from men and mm-hmm. we should maybe take a look at who she is without them. And I thought that was very effective and beautifully handled. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. Sorry. <laughs> I can that's talk a, about this. No, before. that's a Ever. nice point. You literally, I like that. No, you literally did that. You, you, you've wrapped us up really, really, really nicely. Um, and uh, I think that's a, uh, that's fantastic. Um <laughs> Thank you so much. This was so great. Oh, I'm so sorry. glad yeah, Kenny put us really in touch. Fun. Oh uh, my god, me too. Where can people find your your writings on? If you Google your name, it comes up with in Kennedy Center. You get some of your opera writings. But where else can people yes. find your? Yeah. yeah. So well, my writings, unfortunately, I'm sort of sprinkled all over the internet with everything from like software to you know, I, mean, <laughs> I go where the need is, and right now the need sure. is very is very digital. But um, I'm most proud of the work I've done for the Kennedy Center. We do have a project that we're, that is in the works now that I won't say much about, but I'm mm. very, very pleased about. Most of my stuff is opera-centric, which I'm very proud to do. Um, so yeah, if you go to the digital learning website, you will find a lot of resources that I have written. Um, some of them not about music, though. I did. I got a chance to write about August Wilson, which I was really pleased to do. And mm. so there's some, some really nice... I got to flex some of my literary muscles, which is where my first degree was from. Um, yeah, and I, I I should say that I have a, a a lovely friend who has done his own podcast that's an audio drama, and I am in it. Ooh, um, I, <laughs> what is that? So it's called Around the Sun. Uh, it's for the Broadway Podcast Network, available wherever you get your podcasts, and it's in its third season. Uh, I helped out a little bit with the production this season, and this is one of my bestest friends. And he was like, "Oh, let me just have you, you know, like lay down a couple of lines in this one scene." So you get to hear my hard attempts at acting starting October eighteenth. Um, yeah, Around the Sun podcast season three. All right. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. That'll be fantastic. Oh, awesome. Can be very pleased. Thanks, Lee. Eleni, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. This is the best. Ring out the old, ring in the new. A midnight wish to share with you. Your lips are warm. My head is light. Were we alive before tonight? I don't need a crowded ballroom. Everything I want is here. If you're with me, next year will be the perfect year. Before we play. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. 
Please rate and review the original cast on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help other listeners find the show. Go to bit.ly slash originalcaststore for original cast merchandise like t-shirts, tote bags, and more. Become a patron of the original cast at patreon.com slash originalcastpod so you can listen to our bonus podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. On the socials, we're at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Lenny Hagen for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn. And I can't. I have rehearsal. It's New Year's Eve and hopes are high. Dance one year in, kiss one goodbye. Another chance, another start. So many dreams to tease the heart. We don't need a crowded ballroom. Everything we want is here. Thank you.